13. I'm reading from the uh, NIV version. Um, if you've got your Bibles or your phones, feel free to read along. Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram sent to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted companies, parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. I just want to invite Jeff up. I'm just going to pray for him before he brings his sermon. <clears throat> uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in it. Um, we thank you for Jeff. Um, we just pray for your hand over him. I pray you speak through him and your spirit will be here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Last week we... Uh, Saw a pretty sad story, really, when we looked at Abram and his, um, his uh, anxiety and how it led him to uh, compromise the uh, security of his own wife and uh, how that eventually turned out okay because not of anything that he did, but the promise of God was operating upon his life and God's purposes were not over as yet. And so in this passage, we return to Abram and and now he's come to his senses and something has happened in him and he returns to the land of promise and he heads up to uh, that place where he had first seen uh, an experience, tangible experience of the Lord and received the confirmation that this was his land uh, at the beginning of the previous chapter. And uh, now in verse 2 of this, uh, this chapter we read that he's journeyed on from Egypt uh, up through the Negev, the, uh, the rough places, right up as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Tim, do we have a, a slide? There we go. Now, uh, I've a, I don't know if you can actually see this, but it's sort of a, not so much a map as a three-dimensional picture of where we are. 
And he's somewhere between Bethel and I. We don't actually know where I was, but we know where Bethel was. You can see Jerusalem and Canaan on the left, Bethel and I. And there's sort of a, an, a hollow in the, the tundra there, and this is where he is, up in that, that area. And it's a high country. And then you see Jericho down in the plain, the Jordan River Valley, the Dead Sea. And over on uh, the right here, you'll see Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not exactly sure where Gomorrah was, but uh, pretty sure we know where Sodom was. Um, archaeologically speaking. But uh, so these are the places that uh, have some pertinence to this story this morning. You can keep that image in your head um, <clears throat> and it'll be on the exam at the end of semester. <laughs> uh, so there we have it. It's, uh, that gives you a, a picture of uh, in Damascus, Sea of Galilee, where the Lord did a lot of his ministry right up north, Damascus over further. Um, this is the, the nature of the beast that we're, we're looking at. It's very important geography for our, our message this morning. And so, effectively, this is not just a geographical trip. It's also a theological trip or a spiritual return that Abram uh, understandably gravitates to the place where God has revealed himself and he is first known the name of God. Uh, and uh, he goes back because I, I, I think I'd be doing much the same. I, I think he'd be returning to that place where he knows God has been in the past and you know, hopefully if he wants to draw near to the Lord, this will be where he will be again. And uh, <clears throat> that's, that's why he is there. And that's sometimes like ourselves. We can identify with that in our own spiritual journeys, I'm sure. That's sometimes a, a good yardstick about where the health of our own spiritual life is, is to just recall the joys that we had and the, the exuberance that we had at that point at which we decided to bow the knee to Christ. And it's good to return and be taken back to those places where God has been most vivid and real. Life is, has a tendency to take us away and to to lower our horizons and to make our faith mundane. But this is a good place to be. There's no better place to be than in the eye of God's will. And that's where Abram wants to be this day. But then a predicament arises, partly due to the blessing of God himself, that uh, Abram now has uh, abundant wealth and, and so does his nephew Lot. And... They're travelling together and they have a lot of uh, uh, livestock, they have a lot of servants, growing families, all that sort of thing. And tucked up between Bethel and Ai, uh, there's not enough land to support them. The blades of grass are being ripped out of the ground up in the high country. There's not uh, uh, capacity to stay there. Plus, their very presence of these hundreds of people and donkeys and goats and sheep, uh, would have started to raise suspicion. What are these people here for? Why are they moving in? And right in that point, we have the new model Abram come to the fore. Abram Mark II, as opposed to last week. Now, he is the elder in this family. He's now the patriarch. And uh, he has the right and the privilege to choose where he will graze and what lands he will use. But astonishingly, 
unlike anyone of his vintage, uh, he forgoes that choice. And he puts up this prospect a lot. You have the choice. You go to the land that you would like. Which do you prefer? I'll take the other. That's what he's saying. Very strange thing. This is not a man possessed with anxiety. There's been some degree of conversion here that's moved beyond the superficial adherence just to a new deity and a new religious practice. This is a conversion down to the level of values and it's affected his psychology. He is a man somewhat more at peace with the world and fellows in the world are not competitors. This is a nature of a man who's on a journey towards life change. His own inner security is shown by his outward generosity. Now, why is that? I think it's simply because Abram, when he thinks about it, he cannot conceive of ever getting ahead of God. He cannot conceive of having more blessing than what is there for him in the will of God. He doesn't have to make his way in the world. His life is lived under the promise of God. His whole life is a calling, and it's God's business how that will happen. How different that is to the mercenary values of so many in our own age. He's free from the conventional expectations. And in our age, how refreshing it is when you meet people like that. I can remember some distinct uh, figures in my past as I was a a young Christian and a young theologue at college. I remember we had a particular lecturer who we uh, all adored because he was so approachable and so natural. And uh, I remember being in this class one day and we were learning about New Testament history and the sects uh, in the New Testament. Uh, And he had... He thought, I've got a lecture on this group, the Herodians, but he turned to a famous Bible dictionary and he was reading an article on the Herodians and he's thinking, this is pretty good stuff. I wonder who wrote this. And he got to the end of the article and he discovered he had in 1969. (laughs) And uh, we, we enjoyed this fellow. He'd begin his lectures with a simple prayer every time. Oh, Lord, that we might see Jesus. That was it. I'm telling you, we did, in a form in front of us, week by week. This man twice was approached by his denomination. The Anglicans approached him twice in life to be the Archbishop of Melbourne. And people couldn't understand that he rejected this privilege because he understood that he was a teacher, not an administrator. (laughs) And it was no honour to get out of the will of God and the calling to which he'd been called, which was to teach God's word. That's a refreshing thing when we see people have the freedom of trust that comes with understanding that our life cannot wring from God more blessing than he has already planned for us. That's a freedom. You contrast this, we have two lives here, you contrast this with... um, his nephew, Lot, <clears throat> and he makes this prospect and uh, we read this fascinating verse in verse 10 where it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere 
like the garden of the Lord. I think as they're standing up on the high country there, they could see in the distance an incredible green tinge around that lake. And he knew that that was good land. The man had eyes. But it was the, it was the focus of those eyes that is quite disturbing. He saw it was watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like Eden and all the tales he would have heard of the original land. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, a little hint from the writer there. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. He took up his option. Isn't it fascinating, as as Lot looked out, He rationalises internally. He thinks in his heart of hearts, my goodness, I've got to have this land. And how did he learn to think like that? Well, it seems like when he was down in Egypt, he saw their land. He saw the prosperity and the opulence of the Egyptians. He saw the monuments to their, their ego and power. And he started to want the same things they had the good life and he envied them and from envy he began to crave what they had and then to love what they loved years ago I remember a a, a Christian woman in a a church tennis club that I was part of and um, she she, uh, lived in the suburb of Chadston now that really got to her because a lot of the women in her team, Chadston, you know, that backwater. <laughs> and uh, she lived with, she played tennis with a lot of women in her club and her team who lived in Malvern. And for years it was uh, an ambition of hers that one day she might be able to get the wherewithal together and convince her husband to sell up their mid-century modern in Chadston and to shift to a clinker brick in Malvern. And... Uh, Years went by, and right up until around uh, the late 90s, she finally found her little paradise in Malvern. I emphasise the word little. The year after she bought, interestingly, the Premier of Victoria redrew the boundaries of the council, and the very house that she was in became part of Malvern. (laughs) That's the, the nature of the deceptiveness of the sins of the eyes. Now, this man, Lot, he makes a calculated rational decision, it seems, but actually something else is thumping away inside his appetites. The writer Richard Lovelace, uh, whose book I appreciated many years ago on Christian spirituality, he wrote these words which I think are telling. He says, To flee from God to some far country... And to search for fulfilment there is only to find black market substitutes. That's the nature when saints choose worldliness as an add-on to the gospel. They're only going to be defrauded. Now this isn't something that Satan has bought on Lot. He has been seduced by his own appetites. Satan might use those, but he's then on a road to corruption and he moves his tent right up near 
and all his belongings and his family right up near the city of Sodom, which is notorious even in that time, even in the time of lawlessness and power and brute force. Sodom is a synonym for perversion, for violence, for corruption. And he assumes that he's going to be able to snuggle up there and it won't be affected. He's just there for the economics. He's just there for his family. He can justify it. But that's not the way sin works. Sin always lies to us since the garden. So we have a society today where bodily sex is confused with the unique bond of marital commitment, where possessions now are sacrificed for mansions to come, where professional therapy is relied upon more than truth-telling friends, where virtue signalling is preferred over the hidden virtues of the heart, where identity politics feeds people from group membership instead of the acceptance of God's justification. That's the nature of the world in which we are at. Many Christians live very close to that world. I love the words of John the Apostle, who rings out through the ages in his older years. He has a way of just hitting these nails on the head. He says, a little command, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's incompatible to be a believer, but to set the barometer of your heart on the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away and along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And this is the fatal choice that Lot makes. He assumes that he can compartmentalise his life and every other part won't be affected. It's the delusion of autonomy. He never consults God about this choice. It's a rational one. And he simply heads off. Now the two results of that is that he's moved so close to this neighbourhood. It's fascinating to see only in the next chapter, in verse 12, Lot only, not only moved near, we read that Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions. So after a while, he's actually drawn into this magnetic field. I think of that so often. I think of so many of my friends who, in our youth, were keen for Christ for living for Christ, for spending our holidays in mission for Christ, who were reading good literature, who chose to sit under the teaching of significant Bible teachers. But today, where are they? Some of them would call themselves unbelievers, some of them would be Buddhists, and I can tell you that out of that group of Keenies, out of the Monash EU, out of Youth Dimension... My friends, we were many, I can count five that still walk with the Lord. Now, how did that happen? It was that assumption that moving close to the culture and adopting some of its mores, 
would not affect our spiritual reality and the validity of our faith. But all that's in the world and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. Those things actually draw us further away and end up corrupting us. And really where he is living is a delusion because he looks at Sodom, he looks at the fields, he looks at that place and he is unaware, as the title of this series says, that he's hooking up to a world that's actually passing away. It's the old world and the new world of the covenant of God has come and that's where he should be living and living for. And, and God's command to, to have faith in trust in him never shouts, it's never loud, it's never glossy, it's never bright. It's always a lesson that's learned in the quiet moments. The world always shouts louder. You know, I think the thing that disturbs me about particularly many of our younger generation is how many times over the decades I've been asked by young people questions like this. Um, can I be a Christian and? Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Do Christians have to read their Bible? Can't I survive spiritually without the scriptures? Uh, is it okay for Christians to go clubbing? You see the common thread in those sorts of questions. The common thread is to ask me, how close can I get to the fail-safe line of wrecking my faith and still have it? It's a pretty dumb question, isn't it? You know, years ago, I can remember when I... <clears throat> actually, you might think that's <laughs> just yesterday, but when I was young and foolish, um, uh, <laughs> I can remember some of the things that my, my friends and I got up to that I would never do now. It's amazing how age changes things. I, I can't believe I used to do abseiling and rock climbing and now I get vertigo just walking over a bridge. Uh, just ask my wife, ask my dog. Um, and, and, uh, but I can remember um, having some mates from uh, Oakley Baptist and, and we would go off tripping in on the weekend and I can remember at the end of one long summer we'd been around the beaches and surfing all summer and were pretty fit and used to swimming in the sea we decided to go for a swim in a, uh, a um, certain reservoir that's out east. Uh, there wasn't anyone there. Hot day, cold water, seemed like a good idea. And then we thought we'd have a little dare. And we thought we'd see who would chicken out first as we swam out into the middle of this increasingly deep reservoir, bottomless pit. And who would chicken out both with the depth and the tug of the spillway. And we started swimming on an angle, all three of us, towards the spillway. And as we're tucking our heads down under the water and taking a breath and ploughing towards this, suddenly we realised there was a fourth body in the water behind us. And our friend Dave, who'd probably never swum 50 metres in his life, had followed us out. And very quickly we realised that we are in the rip heading towards the spillway, and we just had to swim straight across the other side of the reservoir. And Dave made it, gasping and spluttering. No one said a word. We realised how foolish we'd been. 
and it had nearly cost our friend his life. But that's the nature of sin. Satan knows it. The world tells you that you're buoyant. But I tell you what, you never know when you pass the fail-safe point. It never, there's no signs out in the middle of the reservoir. That's the nature of sin. I think that's what's happened with so many of my friends is they thought they could get close to the tug of the world. And they've gone over. That's the nature of sin. You know, God, he, he hasn't got to hang up with sex. He hasn't got to hang up with owning nice things. He hasn't got to hang up with sin. God hates sin because it breaks people. That's why he hates it. And it makes us lesser beings. As Lot here was a man governed by his own passions. Well, at this point, Abram is left up in the high country and you can picture the scene as Lot and his entourage, his camels and his sheep and goats and kiddies, the whole clank of bronze pots and pans descends down the mountain trail towards Jericho, vanishing off in the distance to a wonderful, exciting future. And he's there, and I think it would be interesting to look into his head at that point as he stands there isolated, thinks he's on, the own, on his own. Have I made the right choice? There are no visible means of support. And he's just left with the wind in his face in the high country when God appears again in form, something like what our Lord would have looked like in his glory. And God reminds him that he's actually not alone and that the will and word of God are discovered in the terrain of obscurity. If you want to be part of God's great claim, draw aside to that place where he can speak. And God says to him, stake your claim effectively. Look out as far as you can see. That's yours. That's my grant. I'm granting to you this land. If you can see it, you can have it. And then when you've done that, you go and you walk the breadth and length of the land just like the great station owners in this country that went out and staked the claim. That's yours. That's what I'm promising. Not only that, but your offspring are going to be incalculably great in number. You won't be able to count them. If you could count the sand on the shore, you'll be able to count them. Isn't it fascinating as we sit here today? If Abraham had been able to count, he would have counted you. You are that offspring. That's the astonishing fact that as a result of choosing with the eyes of faith, he has affected your destiny that moment. Aren't we fortunate? And Abraham moves down and up and down. He's in the high country. He ends up down at a place called Mamre, where there's a great terebinth or an oak. And we read there that he settled. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? He found his place of peace. 
His location represents what's happening inside of him. Now, you and I do not have the privilege of, whenever we are on our own, having a theophany that speaks to us about God's presence. But he knows how he's made us. He's made us rational, psychological beings. And he wants us to be intelligent about his purposes. And that's why, through the years since, he has given us this. So it will not fail to reveal the very mind of God to us. People often ask, you know, do I need to be a Bible student to have a healthy Christian life? Now, won't I survive without the scriptures? Surely God is going to preserve me. I've had youth pastors suggest this. Surely it's the company of the church that'll do it. Surely it's uh, simply the providence of God that will preserve us. But the Lord Jesus didn't think that was enough. He wanted us to be on the same page, and so he's given us these pages to be intelligent. And then he's given us the spirit to illuminate these words so that it's no ways inferior to the conversation that Abram had with that theophany of God. If only we appreciated what the scriptures are. They're not a dead letter. They're not a legal document. They're actually the breathed words of God for us. Yes, you can be a Christian without exposing yourself to the word of God regularly, but you won't be a healthy Christian. You'll just be a survivor. That's not what God wants for us. So this day, here we have two lives and they're so different in their genre, in their timbre, in their tone. One is the life which has all the supports of culture around us and the other is a life that sees the world but sees through the world. It sees itself as having already entered into another age, the age of salvation. This world is passing away. It takes a bit of grit to have that sort of perception, doesn't it? But that's what faith really is. Faith is not just a lot of beliefs about a lot of theological concepts, as important as theological concepts are. But faith is being determined to hold on to those when the wind is blowing against us and the world seems to be winning. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we thank you for this life and this calling that calls us to be in the world but to be separate in terms of our passions and our perceptions. Lord, in these days, these difficult days, as this society seems to just move away from its, the, the Christian heritage that was built into it years ago, we, Lord, do pray that the understanding of who we are in the great scheme of God would not diminish and that again you would rise up within your church to revive this vision of who you are and what you have for the church. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.